My name is Trish Ware, and I am obsessed with all things pregnancy and birth, and helping you to navigate both the practical and the magical seasons of this journey called motherhood. I'm an all-day coffee-sipping mama of seven and labor and delivery nurse who took her expertise in the labor room and turned it into an online one-stop shop for mamas looking for powerful education and support. I've had the amazing privilege of delivering many babies in my 15 plus year career as a labor and delivery nurse and as a mama of seven. I'm here to help you take the guesswork out of childbirth so you can make the choices that are right for you and your baby and write the birth story of your dreams. So hit subscribe and let's replace your anxiety and fear with complete confidence. Quick note, this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not replace your medical advice. Check out our full disclaimer at the bottom of the show notes. Mamas, I am so excited today. We are doing something a little bit different than we normally do, but something that is so important. So I have two guests here today, Helen and Rachel, and I'm going to let them tell you guys what it is that they do. We were talking a little bit before we started and I asked them what is their like main purpose, their main goal in the things that they do. And Rachel answered me and said she wants to see us as moms, us as parents, give ourselves a little grace and allow ourselves to fall into our role as mamas, as dads. And I love that so much because it falls in line to what I tell my students every week, that our instincts, our, our natural ability to parent this child is important. So I'm super excited. That was a long intro, but let's go ahead and get started. I'm going to have Helen go ahead and start and tell us a little bit about herself and how her journey into motherhood plays a role in what she does. And she's also going to tell you what it is she does. So go ahead, Helen. Yeah, thanks so much, Trish, for having us today. So I'm Helen Hadani. I'm a, currently a fellow at the Brookings Institution, which is a public policy research institute based in Washington, D.C. So I'm a developmental psychologist and have for my career really taken a lot of research from education and developmental psychology, mostly focusing on the early years and really thinking about how we can take so many rich research findings and apply those in different contexts. So I met Rachel at the Bay Area Discovery Museum, where we were both working at the time, myself as a research director, and Rachel as the director of the on-site preschool there. And so we made this really amazing connection and have this shared passion for taking research, bringing it into the classroom, using it really inform what parents know and how they parent and how they interact with their child. And so that's that's really the point of the book that we wrote, The Emotionally Intelligent Child, is really trying to give more knowledge and tools to parents so that they can parent with more patience and understand where their child is in their development so they can understand some of the things that come out of their child's mouth, the behaviors that they're seeing, and really trying to understand where their child is in their development so they can help support their social emotional learning. And we're really happy to be here today to talk about this with you 
and to really, again, give parents more knowledge and tools in how to parent more patiently. I think that is a brilliant goal. <laughs> I could have used you guys. I should have done this recording yesterday, honestly. Rachel, we would love to hear about you as well. Okay. Hi, I'm Rachel Katz. As Helen said, we met at the Bay Area Discovery Museum where I am an educator and a child development expert. And so I came to child development through education and a love of the early childhood years. My early work before I was working with Helen, I combined my creativity with education. And I knew early on when my mom got me on Sesame Street long ago when I was really young. And I just thought, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Like we can be educating young children in a joyful way. So I have spent my entire career combining education and the arts really, and creative outlets for kids and making sure that there's an applied practice to education where it's fun and kids are learning and they're doing and they're playing. And I started to see that if kids were emotionally and socially balanced and could work with one another and with themselves and their feelings, then they could find even more joy and be even more creative with the endeavors that they were taking on. So I started to really spend most of my time working in the field of social and emotional learning and becoming a real expert in understanding the development of the development of how kids understand who they are in relation to others. So when Helen and I were working together, we said, we really should write a book on the things that we're doing and that we're learning. We should share what we know with a larger audience, with parents that might be curious about understanding how our kids develop emotional intelligence. So that's what we did with our book. And we're happy to share it with you today. I love that so much. And some of the things that I was reading when I was preparing for this recording, I love it because I feel like even what you were just saying is applicable to us as mamas and as parents, because if we can incorporate those things into our parenting role we're also happier and we're also more well-adjusted. But I definitely love this and I love because a lot of my listeners are pregnant or newly became moms. So one of the things I really wanted to ask you is what are some early ways that, that these parents can begin to think about their baby's developing mind. And because we all know that children go through like a different stage of it's all about mama, it's all about me, now it's about this world. So what would you tell a new mom that's coming to you guys and asking for help? Because play starts early, their minds are developing early. Yeah, I can start and then Rachel can definitely chime in. So one of the first things that comes to mind and one of the chapters in our book is really around language development and really understanding and recognizing that language development starts way before kids start talking, right? It starts, yeah, from the, from birth and making those social connections, knowing from 
a lot of developmental research that those connections are made, just these back and forth exchanges of new parents smiling at their baby and the baby reacting to that. And that's how you create these social and emotional bonds that are really the foundation of what we talk about in our book in terms of being emotionally intelligent and socially aware and talking and narrating what you're doing to your child way before they start talking themselves is super important. So really just making those connections with your baby will help boost their language development later on and really reading, looking at them, reading their signals and having these, what we call serve and return exchanges with young children is incredibly important as a foundation for language development and social emotional learning. So I did a workshop inside of my mama community. We have a mama membership community. I have experts come in and they teach different topics from trying to conceive all the way to toddlerhood. And one of them did talk about this serve and return. And I would love for you to explain to my audience what that means, because I knew what it was, but I didn't know the terms for that. So I'd love for you to tell these new moms, what is that serve and return and what does that look like? Yeah, it looks different at different stages of development, but let's say to start when you do have a young child that starts talking, it's basically a back and forth exchange that you want to get going. So your child may start have their first words and they start labeling something. So then the parent would respond, oh, I see that you see a dog outside the window or you see a flower or they're trying to build children's vocabulary that way, but also acknowledge what their child is either pointing at or looking at and giving some kind of response. And then the child responds back to that. So you can think of it, the metaphor serve and return is like a tennis ball going back and forth. And so those are the types of exchanges that you want to be seeing to build children's language development. And then when you when you have a pre-verbal child, when you have a baby, you're doing the same thing, but it might be without words. So you smile at your baby and they give some response back. They may smile back. They may make noises and show that they're acknowledging that positive response. And then you, again, do something back. And so it's this Again, it's just a back and forth exchange between caregivers and children to acknowledge that there, there's communication. There's communication going on back and forth, and that can happen in the form of words, or it can happen in the form of facial expressions or body movements or whatever is developmentally appropriate at that time. I love that so much because it also falls into line what I think we, as most of us who are the primary caregiver of a newborn or an infant or a baby, I think we already naturally do that because even I'm thinking about when your baby's, ah, and then you're like, ah, back at them or whatever, you can mimic that. So I love for um, the mamas who are listening, who are exhausted, who are critical of themselves, who are just thinking we have what we call a labor bat signal in our membership for our students only where they get access to me and my doula. And that's from 37 weeks to six weeks postpartum. And one of the things I hear a lot from these new moms is how they feel like they're failing at everything. And I, I love hearing that because I bet a lot of my moms listening are like, oh, I do that. I'm already doing that. Check mark. Good job for me. So that I think that's wonderful. And even being able to develop it a little more because like you were saying, a lot of times I think when our baby's like dog, we're like, oh, a dog. But even bringing that 
making it a more of a conversation with your baby. I think that's brilliant. All right, Rachel, do you have anything to say about that stage of motherhood and babyhood? I can just add to some of what Helen has shared and then also Trish add to what you've shared and to those, if any of those moms are listening that feel exhausted. So with Helen, with this whole idea of serve and return, she talked about pre-verbal and smiling. Your child is watching you. They're watching you to understand the emotions that they need to know and the feelings that they need to know. This is sophisticated. A small baby doesn't know yet that there are feelings and emotions, but you're they're trying to figure out what's going on in their environment. So they're watching your face and they're listening carefully to the sounds that you make to understand what are the sounds that I need to listen for that are the sounds that are used for the language that's being spoken around me. So it's important to think about that. So when your facial expression, look, if you serve, <laughs> or if they serve and you don't return, so you missed. Okay, next time, it's think about a tennis match. Sometimes when you're playing tennis and the serve is so fast and you miss it, you know, the match is still going on and you're still a mom and there's still a chance for you to return. So don't be too hard on yourself if there's a serve and you miss it. You always have a chance. There's going to be lots of serves and lots of returns that you can take. So that's really important to remember. The other thing is, Sometimes as a mom with really young children, it's pre-verbal. We're waiting about a year, two years for our kids to actually start talking to us. And we're such creatures that love language. We communicate through language mostly. So it, there's this very long stretch that you're with your child and you don't know what they're thinking and you don't know what they're feeling and you have to figure it out without any language. You can talk to your kid. <laughs> Even if you think your child isn't talking to you, that's fine. And they don't have the skills. You could just say how you're feeling. Talk about the day. Because what you're doing is you're giving them a chance to hear natural language and their mother tongue, that, which means the language that's used in, the, in their environment around them and the, the language that they need to be able to communicate their feelings to the people that are caring for them. That's how you can think about mother tongue. So just talk away. If you don't respond, know that you can, if there's a serve or if you make a bad serve, you can go back and you can return it differently. So that's what I'd like to share about that. I love that too, because I forgot to hit on that when Helen said that about narrating your day. I think we all do that anyway, but then we're like, oh my God, I'm, I'm losing my mind. I'm talking to a three-week-old like it's an adult, but that you're saying, oh, keep doing that. That's good. It's fine. Exactly. If you tell your child, okay, now we're going to get back in the car because I forgot to buy the milk. I cannot believe I forgot to buy the milk. And you're telling this to your child as you're putting them in their car seat. They're watching your mouth. They're hearing, they're watching your mouth make the shapes that are needed and your tongue moving to make the sounds that are needed to, to be able to communicate. They're not missing anything. So it's absolutely fine. You're not going crazy. Watch what you say. Obviously. And if your neighbor looks at you like, what are you doing? Turn around and say, I am developing my child's language ability. <laughs> That's what I'm hey, doing. You're like, you do it with a <laughs> smile, right? 
do you have a neighbor? Yeah. Do you want to say something to my child so that <laughs> they can hear even another, another tone of saying the exact same thing in the same language? I already do this when I'm by myself. So, oh my gosh, did I forget to get stinking bread? I did. Shoot. <laughs> I'm going back. Oh, I love that so much. So the next thing that really caught my eye is you guys mentioned their pro-social behavior and impulse control and perspective taking. And I think that I would love to touch on how we can support those things. How can we help support them developing that because I think one thing as a parent of toddlers and then I have a son who's seven I feel like it's a constant battle in my home to teach my son how to control his impulses and you know now I'm like oh what should we have done previously or what can we do now to help him learn not only his impulse controls but just even how to handle his emotions and how to cope yeah so i can start and talk a little bit about um, executive function and that sort of impulse control self-control comes under that umbrella and then hand it over to rachel to definitely talk more about some different practices and things that we talk about in the book that in in the form of games and fun ways to build your child's executive function skills but just to Talk a little bit about what those are. Executive function is a term that's used to refer to a suite of skills that allow us to really monitor and control our behaviors to make hopefully smart and informed decisions. So the different parts of executive function include impulse control, cognitive flexibility, our working memory, and also our focus and attention. Right. So when you think about these skills, they're all incredibly important for children's learning and are often talked about in a more academic or classroom setting. Right. Because if kids can't pay attention to what's going on in the classroom and can't control their impulses, it's going to be really hard for them to be successful and to learn in a classroom setting. But you also think about, or we talk about these skills in terms of a child's social and emotional development, because they're also really important for children when they're learning to work with other people, to collaborate, to have conversations with others. We have to exercise and use these skills as well. And so we talk about in the book, different ways to build executive function skills. And some of those ways are really teaching kids skills to plan and reflect. Having children plan out, example, is something called a play plan, right? In which children can actually think about what they're going to do in their day. Maybe this is in their preschool day, right? And they can actually think about what the activities that they want to do throughout the day. So it helps them think really intentionally about what they want to accomplish and what they want to do in their day. And then also on the other side is thinking about reflection and helping your child illustrate their thinking and thinking about an experience that they just had. Maybe something went wrong, for example, in the Lego structure that they were trying to build. So talking through that with them and thinking about what went well, what could have gone better, and what would you maybe change next time. So these skills of planning and reflecting are things that we, we encourage parents to talk about and to work through with children. And also in a classroom setting, I think teachers also use these skills and use these activities to build their students and children's executive function skills. And so I'll hand it over to Rachel to talk more about some different strategies that we talk about in the book to build impulse control and executive function. 
Thank you, Helen. Okay, so I'm going to take, as Helen said, we used planning and reflecting tools and techniques in classrooms when we were working with children, and we learned a lot. Now I'm going to tell you how I used it at home and what was a success and what wasn't a success, because when you have a lot of expertise, or I'm just going to talk for myself, when I have a lot of expertise, I think that it's all going to go fine in my house. Okay, so I was doing a lot of the planning and reflecting tools, and I noticed my son who's older now, but when he was younger in first grade, he had actually kindergarten. He had a lot of impulse control issues, a lot. To the point that sometimes I was a little nervous about what I said and how I would say it and how our day would go because I would anticipate some of his outbursts and just and become preoccupied and scared. And I was not even in the moment with my kids because, or with my son, because I was so nervous of how he would behave. So I decided to take these play plans, this idea that I used in my classroom all the time, which worked really well. I was the teacher. I was the one that everyone would, the, my, my kindergarten students would follow, and I'm going to bring it home. I started with my son and I had to, and this is explained in our book too, so you can see clearly how to make these shifts if you're using the book as a teacher or if you're using the book as a parent. I came home and I said to my son, I intentionally carved out time in our day and I noticed that his impulse control was less after dinner. So at the end of the night, in between dinner and bedtime. So I intentionally said in between dinner and bedtime, Before he leaves the dinner table, we are going to discuss and make a plan about what he's going to do and then just have him think and start to anticipate he wanted to work on his Lego building. And then we talked about what do you want to build and how do you want to build it and what do you imagine it will be and what will happen if it doesn't go your way. This was the huge sort of shift for him to start to think about how he might control his impulses before he even had to control his impulse. Because in the moment, it's quite hard. But if you plan and visualize and anticipate what might happen, at least he was then developing a set of skills that he could work on. So not only did we talk about it, we wrote it out. I grabbed a piece of scrap paper and I drew lots of little stick figures. I'm not a great artist, but he could then see exactly what it might look like for him to be building his Lego, for something to go wrong, and then for him to actually think about how he would control his impulses. And we drew him breaking the Lego. We drew him taking a couple deep breaths so he could see his options. Great. Off you go. He goes to his bedroom. This is after doing this, let's like three times. He goes off to his bedroom and everything is going great. It's lovely. I'm feeling like, woohoo, I've got this. He's got this. Then all of a sudden, I hear the crashing and the yelling and all of that feeling that you have or that I would have of, I would get a knot in my stomach. How am I going to deal with this? I go into the room and I see exactly what is going on. And I decide I'm not going to respond. 
I take that play plan with the little stick figure pictures because he's not a reader yet. So those little stick figure pictures help him to be able to remember. It's not in words, it's little pictures and it could help him to remember how to respond. And I just put the play plan in his room and I walk away and I take a couple deep breaths. I do what we call the mind framework, which is in our book, the second part of the book, where I'm trying to get mindful. I ask myself some questions. I'm not judging him. I'm not judging myself. And then I'm just thinking about, okay, how am I going to handle this? He is in his room, still thrashing about, and then calms himself down. And I then am outside of his room and decide after he's calm, I am not going to go back and talk to him. I'm just going to not even go back and entertain the incident. I'm going to just let it pass. And then that night when we're going to bed and we have a little story time, I'm going to introduce the idea of reflecting much later, let's say an hour later, so that he's not so close to the incident and he doesn't feel ashamed or he doesn't feel embarrassed by not having stuck to his plan plan. We just reflect together We look at what worked. We talked about what happened, what caused him that emotional upset in the moment, and what he might do differently next time. And that is what Helen and I talk about, the planning and reflecting and how you could use that at home. And also, that's really helping your child to understand impulse control. Okay, so Rachel, because most of my audience that is listening right now, the majority of them... There are some that have older children, but for the most part, my audience are either moms of toddlers or pregnant with their first. So how would you practically apply this with a toddler or a younger child? If To practically apply this with a toddler, toddlers are really attracted to novelty, to things that are new. So if you're going to introduce this idea of planning and reflecting with a child, What I might do, and this is something that I do a lot in my classroom, is I model what it looks like talking to a stuffed animal or a puppet. And I ask them, so what I would do at home with my small children is if we were going to start a new activity, I would have a puppet or a stuffed animal nearby and I would say to the puppet or stuffed animal, oh, we're going to play the game Candyland, for example. Or let's just use Candyland, or I'll just use that. I think some preschoolers still play Candyland, (laughs) but we're going to play Candyland. What color are you going to choose to be the object that's going to move around the board? And my little puppet would, I'd ask the puppet and then I'd have the puppet answer, I'm going to choose the yellow. And I would then ask my child, what color are you going to choose? And they'd say, I'm going to choose the blue. They know now that they've made a choice, that they're going to stick with the blue. And then I might ask my my puppet, what's going to happen if you don't choose the color that you want? And then my puppet will say something. I'll have my puppet answer exactly how I think or what I think is like proper control of emotions to say something like, I will be sad, but I'll keep trying. And then I'll ask my child, what will you do if you pick the card that's not the color that you want? So that they then, they've seen me say something, they've seen the puppet say something, I've preempted how they might respond, and then my child will say something. And that will give me a great opportunity to understand how my child is thinking about 
how they're going to play the game. I'm laughing while you're talking because only an experienced mom, like my mamas who are listening to this, they're like, really? But my moms who know, they know they know because we have all had an extreme child meltdown when they don't get the color they want in Candyland. And look, if you are a new mom, try things. There's Don't think of anything as a failure because you are learning what works well for you and what works well for your child. You might try and the puppet doesn't work and you don't feel comfortable doing that. Don't use that. But ask yourself, what will I feel comfortable doing? And what will my child like? What could be new for both of us that we'll feel comfortable doing? And give that a try. I love this so much because I feel like it's such a practical way for us as parents and a really simple way for us to teach our child how to navigate disappointment and high charged emotions and they're they're going to have to there is no way around that you have to be able to and i would say that a lot of us and a lot of older children even i'm thinking of my older children our parents like my generation our parents are like do it because i said to do it that's that don't cry about it do it and i love that this is like acknowledging that our children are going to face these situations and face being emotional about not getting the color they wanted or what have you but we're giving them practical tools to be able to adjust and to cope and also allowing them to feel the emotions that they feel just to add something quickly Trish it's really important for kids to, yeah, experience these emotions. We often want to shield our children from having negative experiences, but the more opportunities that they have to do that in a safe environment, and I think one of Rachel's big points is around doing it in a playful context. So through play, children feel they can experience different emotions, positive and negative, and that gives them practice and how to navigate those. And yeah, I love Rachel's point and your points, Trish, in terms of giving the more opportunities children have to experience some not, you know, not so positive or negative emotions, then they're going to be able to navigate and develop these social emotional skills and really develop a strong foundation for interacting with other people and knowing what to do and how to manage their emotions in, in stressful situations. I love that so much. And the other thing I wanted to ask you guys, if you could explain a little bit more, and we've probably already talked about it somewhat, just not capped under the framework, but can you explain your mind framework and what exactly that is and why it's so important? Sure. I can start and just talk about generally, we offer the mind framework in the book. It's the second part of the book. So in the first part of the book, we talk about, we have chapters about executive function and language development and family culture and an area of research called theory of mind, which is really thinking about your own thoughts and feelings and those of others and how those shape our interactions with other people. And then in the second part of the book, we want to take that research and put it into a practical framework. So it really helps parents respond to their child's actions with less reactivity and more patience. And so just to go through exactly what the acronym means, M is for mindfulness. And this is really around taking the time to observe your thoughts and feelings and without 
immediately reacting. So going back to the example that Rachel gave with her son in terms of him getting frustrated with, with building his Lego structure and then not feeling that she has to respond to that immediately, really taking the time to think about when would be a good time to talk with him and reflect on that experience with him. So that's the M. And then for I, this is about inquiry. This is really about thinking about asking questions and asking about your child's actions, listening to their responses with respect. Instead of always telling your child what to do, it's about asking yourself and your child, how, what are we experiencing? How are we seeing this? That's the I. The N is for non-judgment. And this is about really trying to avoid judgment by observing your child and thinking about their development and their needs. So we often can default to feeling shame or criticism or judgment about how we parent. And again, this goes back to something Rachel said earlier about really just being patient with yourself as a parent, that there are many opportunities to support your child's development and just being gentle and patient with yourself. And then lastly, the D is for decide. And that's being really intentional about how you do respond to your child's actions and thinking about, again, the timing of when you respond to your child and how you think about their development and how you think about how your child is perceiving a particular situation or environment. Just to go through quickly, like the, that's the what MIND stands for. And then Rachel can definitely talk a little bit more about practically how do we, you know, why do we introduce the framework in the book and how do we want parents and children to be able to understand and use it? Thanks, Helen. That was great. I'm going to go back to the example with my son and I'll explain because Helen just did a fabulous job of summarizing what the mind framework is and the each part of the mind framework. I mentioned it quickly that I used it with the planning and reflecting. So if you go back, I, I did not need to use the mind framework when I had done the planning and reflecting with my son, but I certainly needed to access the mind framework when I heard him tearing up the room, breaking up his Lego, and not following the plan that he had set out for himself and that I was hoping, I was also anticipating that he would use. So I saw him in his room and I saw what was happening. I first used the mind, which is the M for the mind, which is the mindfulness bit. And for me, the mindfulness work is I access either some breathing techniques that get me back to balance, which I just take a couple of soft, smooth inhalations through my nostril, through the nose, and then a little bit of a longer exhale through the nose. And I count them when I am really amped up and ready to react and need to just move into my body or into a sense, my senses being what I can see, hear, smell, one of those senses, I first try my breathing and I count the number of breaths and I make sure that I've done at least five. And if I need, and then after five, I check in to see, am I still feeling reactive? And if I am, I just keep breathing. And then I check to see how are my toes, how are my fingers feeling? Like all the way down, I do a little bit of a body scan after I've done my deep breathing. And I can see that my son is okay. I can see that I've taken the time to do five breaths and I see that he's not breaking up anything, that he's not going to harm himself, not going to break anything in the house. So I have a chance to do this. Some people feel like they don't have a chance, but 
five breaths takes all of maybe 30 seconds. It's not a long time. So you actually do have the time to get yourself back to balance. Then I go into the I for inquiry. So I ask myself, what am I feeling? What am I telling myself? I do, and I back up and I think about what is going on for myself. And I answer all those questions as honestly as I can. And I'm toggling back with the inquiry, asking myself questions in the end of non-judgment, just saying, Rachel, listen to your response. Don't blame yourself. Don't shame yourself. Don't judge yourself, which is hard to do, but you can become familiar with what that judging voice sounds like and just say, judging voice, I hear you. Thank you so much for saying what you're saying to me, but I'm not going to listen to you right now. Then I just go back and I ask questions. Then I move out of inquiry about myself and how I'm feeling. And I ask, I use the inquiry to start to ask, okay, what's going on for my son? What might've happened for him? How did he plan to do to build his Lego? What had he said? What had he imagined? The techniques that he would use to control his impulses. And how might he be feeling right now not having used them? So I use that inquiry to try to get into his mind space, to his understanding, and to really, and that helps me to empathize with him. And then what Helen mentioned is part of that inquiry, I asked myself, what is he developmentally capable of doing at his age? And this is why it's helpful to know some child development. Am I expecting too much? Or what, has, what, is the, what are some of the things that he was able to do? So I really take that inquiry and I not only ask about what I'm observing with him, but I also think about child development as a whole. That age group, that age range is capable of. Then, and I spoke a little bit about the non-judgment. And again, I have to toggle when I'm inquiring about my child, I have to toggle in and out of that non-judgment because sometimes I think some not so kind things about how I've parented and about my child. To be honest, we can think, oh, my kid is a terror. They're not capable. And we can say some pretty unkind things to ourselves about our child. And so I pay attention to that language too. And I don't blame myself for having it. I just notice, ooh, listen to that. <laughs> That's some special, those are some special thoughts and feelings. And then I move into the D for decide where I knew that if I was going to go in and talk to my son after he had calmed down about that outburst, it just wasn't the right time. In our book, Helen and I talk a lot about time. We think that we have to go in there and fix something or talk about it right after it's happened. And actually, children remember the event and the incident long after it's happened, most often. So you could talk about it four hours from the incident or a week later or bring it up. There's a time that your child will feel balanced and you'll feel balanced and you'll both feel okay to bring this up. And so that's what the mind framework would look like in action. I love that so much. Is that so before we jump off, because I know my audience and they don't like me to go much past 45 minutes, but is there anything else that you guys would want to say? Even let us know, like, where can we find you? And is this a book that you think would be beneficial to a mama who's pregnant to go ahead and read it now? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Trish. And yes, I think so, because I think our the purpose of the book is really to think about not only developing your child's social and emotional learning and emotional 
intelligence, but your own as a parent. And so really taking the time to think about and learn about some of these different areas of development and research and what we know about how children develop, I think is a great tool, even for parents, yes, who are expecting, but also the mind framework, we developed it for parents to use in their own lives. It can apply to parenting. It can just apply to being just socially and emotionally aware and helping us build our connections with other people as well. So I think that's something important as well, even though, yes, we wrote the book for parents to think about in terms of interacting with their child. But I think even before that, it's important for us, social, emotional learning and emotional intelligence, we're always developing that even even as adults, as caretakers, as parents. I'm glad you asked that question. And I think yes, that parents would enjoy. Just to throw in there that we tried to make the book, there's some really fun like graphics and like cartoons, infographics in there to really bring home some of these points that we're talking about. So we wanted to make it really engaging and fun for parents to read as well. So Rachel, can you tell everyone where they can find you if they're interested in learning more? The best way to find me is through LinkedIn and then you can direct message me. You can also, yeah, that's the best way to contact me. And I, back to what Helen said and to Trish, your question, would the emotionally intelligent child effective strategies for parenting self-aware, cooperative, and well-balanced kids, would that be a good book to have if you are an expecting mother? And I would say absolutely. We wrote this so that you could really understand, especially part one. It's really We've taken the time to take some really complicated research findings and make them very easy to understand. We've put them into fun graphic form. And if I were a new parent and could under and had this knowledge even before I gave birth, I would have been, I think, very happy to know a lot of these things. I would, I think I would be a lot, I would have been easier on myself as a parent. Yeah. I love it so much because when you guys are explaining your mind framework, it's literally exactly what I tell my pregnant mamas to do when they're at the doctor's office and they're feeling coerced or bullied into decisions. Exactly. Almost down to the T and just to go home, think, and don't decide when you're feeling emotional. So I love that. Helen, can you tell everyone where they can find you? Sure. Yeah. You can also find me on LinkedIn and message me there or through the Brookings Institution website. That's another place. So yeah, would love to hear from anybody with questions. And and yeah, just to say for the our book, The Emotionally Intelligent Child, you can find that anywhere. You would look for books on Amazon, Target, Barnes & Noble, and hopefully maybe in some of your local bookstores as well. Oh, I love that. And for you guys listening, I'll link to it in the show notes as well. Thank you ladies so much for coming on today talking about something that my moms may not understand is really important yet but trust us as moms that are a little farther along in the process it is very important and it will definitely save you a lot of tears in a locked bathroom so have a great day mamas thank you guys so much for being here I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of the birth experience with labor nurse mama. I really loved speaking to Helen and Rachel about our babies, our children's developing mind. This was such a fascinating topic. 
If you loved it as much as I did, hit review and give us a great review. Let us know what you want to hear next time. And as always, I'll see you next Friday, 7.30 a.m.